Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sperriam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. I'm Charles Fain Lehman of Felt the Manhattan Institute, Jimmy Editor, City Journal. And Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. I think this this episode is coming out, I think, on Passover. So I'm 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 gonna like I'm, I'm gonna finish this episode and then I have to go do various preparatory things for for the holiday with for, for our non-Jewish listeners, of whom I'm sure there are several. That's the, the the holiday that's coming up, I guess, the day that this episode comes out. And then I won't eat bread for, for a week and a half. But this is like, you know, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm introducing my kid to the, you know, all the traditions. So like he's going to help me make matzo balls. So it'll be a good time. We're going to do like a little kid Seder with him. Aw. Do you, do, you, do you scour your house for? No, we're comments? not. We're not. Well, we might actually. Well, I, have, I've, I've, I have the day off. I have, I have Passover off in my contract, which is a major Major, major coup for me. So maybe I, so that means I have my kid all day. So I'll, I'll, maybe we will in fact clean the house together. My wife has been doing some cleaning, maybe doing some cleaning, but you know, it involves, it involves, there's, there's, there's a great deal of, of compliance that goes into it. You have to follow all the rules. There's a, there's a great deal of specificity involved in precisely what you can and cannot eat. Are you, are you, are you keeping, are you keeping Passover this year? Doing more, I mean, I'm going to a seder. I'm going to a seder. You know, my my parents' seder. I'm not. I'm not doing the the compliance. I'm not. I'm not cleaning my apartment. I'm. I'm. I'm out of compliance with with. No, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm I'm gonna call some friends of ours. I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call our friend Cole. He's gonna yell at you. Yeah. Well. So 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 speaking of compliance, Charles, what are we gonna be be talking? Speaking of compliance, talking another institution that's responsible for forcing compliance. We're talking about the phenomenon of institutional accreditation, sort of abstract concept, but I touched on a lot of errors. Actually, why don't, why don't you go ahead and explain sort of the, yeah. the whole, this is, I think, a major theme in what you write about. Yeah, so some people, some of our listeners may have seen that uh, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill recently created a basically a pro-free speech center at the university. And in response, the university's accreditor threatened to investigate. And the reason that this threat had teeth is the way accreditation works under federal law is the the higher education accrediting bodies are all notionally private institutions, except schools have to be accredited by one of the accreditors the government recognizes in order to receive federal funding. So the government basically has a list of private, you know, accreditation bodies it recognizes. And if you're not accredited by one of those, you can't get funding. So when your accreditor in practice says, we're going to investigate you, the, the threat there is that if you don't comply, you could lose all of your federal funding and you'll be, you'll be done. You know, you'll be, you'll be ruined, especially if you're a public institution. For those who follow the culture war, accreditation bodies have been going woke for a while. The American Bar Association has required all law schools to do DEI training. The American, the Association of American Medical Colleges has a ton of like you know, health equity competencies that all the schools have to fulfill. But so what we're really going to talk about today is how, first, how this kind of, these, these woke accreditation bodies shape the incentive structures of institutions of higher education. But then also what we really want to get at is this kind of public-private dynamic and things that the government could do to maybe make accreditation less coercive and less woke. Charles, what's your take on this? I mean, you know, so I, you're, you're sort of a big proponent of the, of the accreditation cartel. We've talked about it a couple of times on the show. I remain sort of, to me, the interesting question, I, I, I think back to our conversation with Shep Milnick, 
who made the point that actually the federal government has never revoked educational funding despite its myriad threats to do so. And so, you know, I, I, I sort of wonder about part of what I want to talk to our guests about today is sort of the extent to which we should think about accreditation as a as sort of a locus of the exercise of power, whether, you know, there's there's an interesting argument that it's 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 withdrawn and that means it's it's really a particularly useful site for power and sort of contemporary bureaucracy. But there's another argument that's like, look, you know, how often do people actually pay attention to what these entities say and how often those entities have bite? So I'm, you know, I'm I'm interested in sort of how how much should we attribute, how much concern should we have for accreditors? What's about accreditors is sort of a a player what are what are your what are your thoughts yeah i mean i would just say there's there's the financial aspect to it and and i take your point that we don't really it's it's not totally clear how credible all of these threats are but i think the other big thing is that accreditation has a legitimating function right people even if they don't know the details of how accreditation works they know that you know most schools are accredited and you're kind of supposed to be accredited it's, you know, originally it started out as a kind of like, this is just a baseline seal of quality assurance, in essence. And my, part of my concern with this is that when accrediting bodies begin to integrate ideology into their accreditation standards, it has the effect of kind of disguising ideological premises as just basic best practices and neutral common sense. And that is the other part of it that I think is quite sinister. And the reason why I think these accrediting bodies really should be ringed in. A great person to discuss all of this with is George Leaf. He's our guest today. George is the director of editorial content for the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. And he recently published a Wall Street Journal op-ed with a very provocative title, Is Higher Education Accreditation Constitutional? George, welcome to Institutionalized. I'm glad to be on with you too. Good topic. Eager to talk about it. Yeah. So, I mean, your 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 op-ed in the title poses a provocative question. So, I figure I'd start by just asking you. So, th- this public-private kind of synthesis that we have to administer accreditation is this constitutional? Well, the argument that my co-author and I made is that it is not. And for the non-lawyers listening, probably the majority of your listeners. I'll briefly explain why we argue that it is not. Under the Constitution, Congress alone has the authority to make laws. The the legislative function vests entirely in Congress. Now, that means that Congress is not authorized to delegate its lawmaking authority to anyone else. It's not allowed to delegate it to to the executive branch. It's not allowed a fortiori to delegate lawmaking authority to private entities. And yet the Supreme Court has been turning a blind eye to the the non-delegation doctrine for the better part of a century. The last time the court really was serious about striking down unauthorized delegation of lawmaking authority goes back to the 1930s. In fact, it was a couple of the court's decisions in the mid-30s that caused Roosevelt to blow, blow his lid and say, I'm going to pack the court to put an end to this, you, you, you terrible old-fashioned justices with your, your outmoded beliefs about the Constitution. So since then, the court has been pretty much turning a blind eye to this delegation problem. But it's still, 
It's still good law. And in fact, just recently, last year in West Virginia versus EPA, the court kind of indicated that it was interested in reviving the non-delegation doctrine. So anyway, what is the non-delegation problem? Once again, to just briefly summarize this, Congress is not allowed to turn over the lawmaking authority, that is to say, making the rules that people must obey. Can't turn that over to the executive branch. It can't turn it over to any private entity. But with respect to college accreditation, that's what it has done. Now, let's, let's back up and review a little bit of the history on this. Going back before World War II, the federal government had nothing to do with higher education. Well, then came the GI Bill. And the Fed said, well, we're, we'll give veterans some money so they can go to college. A lot of them did so. Some of them squandered that money on, on fraudulent entities that promised them education, training programs, and didn't deliver. Fly-by-nighters. So in 1952, Congress said, well, let's fix that problem. And their fix was to say, well, we'll only let institutions that are accredited accept government money. Now, that wasn't such a bad idea back in 1952 because accredited institutions were real colleges. The standards that accredited bodies required back in those days were good enough to ensure that you'd get a real education, you wouldn't get ripped off. They wouldn't just take your money and, and you know, promise you training and education and deliver nothing. So that wasn't a bad solution. But over time, accrediting has, has changed a great deal. And so, of course, have our colleges changed a great deal. But anyway, so as of 1952, anyone using these GI benefits had to, had to go to an accredited institution. Then along came Lyndon Johnson in 1965, pushing the Higher Education Act, which really put the federal government into the financing of higher education in a big way. Not just some money for college for veterans, but now loans available to anybody. Easy, low-interest loans available to anybody. And they kept that rule. You can only use these benefits if you go to an, to an institution that is accredited by one of the accrediting bodies that we recognize as being good enough to ensure that it's not going to be an educational ripoff. And again, that wasn't, wasn't a bad thing initially because accredited bodies were, were real colleges. And that's what accrediting was originally set up to do, to dis help people distinguish whether you're going to a real college, the real library and real professors, or is it some kind of correspondence school fly-by-night thing, calling itself a college, but not really delivering what people regard as a college education. All right, so as of 1965, when we start this massive influx of federal financing for college, so everyone go to college with easy federal loans, they have to be accredited. Now, back in those days, college quality was overseen and pretty, and pretty well insured by the fact that college leaders were all cut from the same bolt of cloth, that they were really were serious academics. And that changed slowly but surely over time. With this massive influx of students with federal money, more and more of those students were kind of academically indifferent, 
disengaged from anything regarding real academic life. They, they weren't serious about st studying, but they could go to college. It was easy to get the money. And more and more people were saying, well, if you don't go to college, your life is just going to be one of mundane drudgery, and so you better go. So the quality of student slowly shifts away from serious kids or going back to World War II. You know, veterans really wanted to learn something to improve their lot in life. Now we're getting more and more kids coming into college who aren't really college material. They're not really serious about studying. They just want to have some fun. They don't really care about reading books and writing papers and studying anything in depth. So you're getting more and more weak students. Mm -hmm. Now, so what will the, the administrations do? Well, they could decide, well, we keep our standards and just wash out the students who were really not college material. Well, that wasn't the way most of them went. Most college presidents said, we like this influx of money. So let's lower our standards. Let's debase the curriculum. Let's have more easy, fun courses. Let's make the old hard courses the pillars of college education of years going by. Let's make that optional. You know, the old requirements, you have to have calculus, for instance, real college-level mathematics. Well, let's make that optional. Hard sciences. Well, let's have some easy sciences instead. So the standards are falling. Grade inflation is another thing. You know, college, many students come into college thinking, well, you know, high school was kind of fun and easy. I want college to be the same way. Then you had professors saying, well, you know, college is supposed to be tough. You have to write hard papers. I'm going to grade them severely. And if you're not up to that, well, you get an F and, and too bad. Well, those, those professors start to, start to find themselves being called on the carpet more and more because they're losing students who mean revenue. That's exactly what happened to me in my own teaching career, by the way. So the standards are falling. Weaker and weaker students are coming in. And these colleges, nevertheless, remain accredited. Now, accrediting never really guaranteed high educational standards. The accrediting bodies never nosed into the details of individual courses to see, well, are the students in English actually learning how to write English well? Are the students in history actually learning anything useful about American history? The accreditors never did that. What they always were about was looking at the inputs. Is the library adequate? Do the faculty members have correct terminal degrees? Does the school have a, a faculty senate? Do they, does it have all the procedures that we expect of a real college? Those are the things that it looked at. Accreditors never really looked at the actual educational results. So now we have loads and loads of students pouring into college, spending government money, their federal student aid money, piling up huge debts, and oftentimes learning little or nothing in their coursework. But you don't get discredited simply because a lot of your students are learning nothing. You only get discredited if you don't have the right inputs, one of them being finance. Now, the only times I've ever heard of a college losing accreditation are when its finances fall apart. Mm -hmm. That I've heard of no cases ever where a, a school was discredited because its courses were too flimsy, where its, where its curriculum was too full of fluff. That just doesn't happen. So accrediting 
purports to guarantee educational quality, but in point of fact, it doesn't do that. We have loads and loads of young Americans going to college, graduating, getting their degree in four or five or six years, and then being employable only as pizza delivery people because they really haven't learned much. But these were accredited schools they went to. So as a, as a practical matter, as far as guaranteeing educational quality, it doesn't do it. And then, as, as my co-author Shannon Coffin and I argued, it also fails a legal test. It ought to be declared unconstitutional if any such case ever came about, because Congress has delegated its decision-making authority, its lawmaking authority, to private entities. For instance, in the case of UNC, Congress never said that these bodies are entitled to declare that only the faculty is allowed to propose new educational institutions, like the School of Civic Life at UNC. That's not a, a rule that Congress ever approved. It's a private rule imposed by the accrediting body, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. So it fails on two accounts. It doesn't really guarantee quality, and it, it fails at the constitutional test. So that's why I think we should dump college accreditation as the gatekeeping entity for federal financial aid. So, so I want to I wanna just stick on the – I just want to stick on – there's a bunch there to unpack, but I want to stick on the, the constitutional thing for just a second because it seems like this is like a bigger picture argument about the validity of accreditation. Right. So, so, so you're sort of taking a well tried stance in, you know, the sort of conservative legal movement at large, which I'm very sympathetic, which is like there's a separate, there's a doctrine of separation of powers. The court's deference to administrative lawmaking has gone way overboard. And the cat, but the counter argument goes, well, okay, but like, Actually, there are only 500 guys in Congress, and mostly they don't have subject matter expertise, and they don't really know what the heck they're doing half the time. And so making broad mandates about generally there ought to be some kind of, you know, accreditation of some sort and then letting subject matter experts sort out the rest of it, the argument goes, is well suited to running a complex modern bureaucracy. So, so what do you make of the argument that delegation in the form of accreditation or otherwise is necessary for modern governments. I, I, I disagree with it. And that I doesn't surprise me. Because most of the issues where Congress has said, we'll let the, the, the administrative state, the bureaucracy handle that. Most, in most cases, the issues are really not all that complex. Now, it, that might be the case in a few instances might be the case with regard to environmental quality matters. But it's certainly not the case when it comes to education. There's no reason whatsoever why there couldn't be a bill in Congress saying, these are the standards that we approve of if we're going to continue to have these accrediting bodies decide whether or not a school will be eligible to keep its federal funding or not. It could easily handle that, could be debated and passed, and then become properly part of our law. So with, the, with regard to education anyway, this, this is certainly not something where we would have to defer to Congress and say, well, we, we've got to allow to have more leeway. It's not the case when it comes to education accrediting bodies. Could, could I also ask, so, I mean, my understanding is the way it works is that the education secretary 
is the one who just who who in principle can decide whether an accreditor is recognized by the government. Mm -hmm. But in practice, they don't really know a lot about what the accreditor is doing. And that's kind of the problem. That's right. Is that? That, that's, yeah. that's right. The, the very few bodies, these traditional regional bodies that were formed late in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, like SACS, the, the mm -hmm. Southern Regional Schools. The Secretary of Education has, has put his stamp of approval on them, putting their stamp of approval on colleges. And there's never been any serious questioning of whether these bodies are doing things that they should do or not. And quite a few people will tell you that these bodies have become captured by left-wing zealots. And the one thing that they're, they, they never really look at educational quality, but what they're now very concerned about is all these DEI-type issues. I remember an article written a few years ago by a friend of mine, Paul Gottfried, at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. And Paul's argument was that the regional accrediting body did its, its uh, they, they, every 10 years they have a campus visit and they, they really scrutinize the, the institution. He said that they paid no attention whatsoever to the, what he viewed as the serious educational shortcomings of Elizabethtown College. But he said what they focused on was the need for more diversity. And of course, the school wanting to keep its accreditation and wanting to keep the accreditor happy, said, well, you, you tell us to jump. How high do we jump? How much accrediting, how right. much diversity do we need to keep our accrediting? This is where they have their power. They've become uh, maybe taken over by these, these woke zealot types who have infiltrated the whole of education. And they use that power to require colleges to do what they want, or in the case of UNC, to turn up a nose and say, well, we don't like that, you, that your trustees have instituted this plan for a new school that we don't really care that much about. And we think it might violate our standards. You didn't go to the faculty first and get their approval. That's the problem with the accrediting system that we have in colleges. Right. I mean, one thing I want to hone in on is you, in, in, in the story you tell, the main force that shifts accreditors from focusing on outcomes to focusing on kind of procedures is precisely that with the influx of federal money, outcomes were going to be bad because a lot of kids coming into college just mm -hmm. weren't really ready for it and so and yeah. so the shift to procedure which i think is is part of what's helped create the dei stuff part of that is because if they did focus on outcomes and that was the metric of legitimacy then due to all this federal money we'd we'd, we'd all the institutions would be illegitimate right they, I, I mean i presume the issue is that there's no real way we can have robust quality standards now because too many people are going to fail them. Yeah, there's, there's no way you can have robust quality standards imposed from Washington. But the good news is there is an easy solution to this. Make sure that the robust quality standards come from the institutions themselves. And that was the other part of the argument that Shannon Coffin and I made in our Wall Street Journal piece. We argue that in order to be eligible for federal student aid money. The test should not be whether you get a credit or not. The test should be 
are you willing to sign on to backing the loans? If you don't think the students you purport to educate are good enough, then you probably don't want to stand behind repaying their loans in case they default. That, I think, is the solution. It's called the skin-in-the-game approach, and it's, it's been talked about for quite a few years. If the schools themselves were the ones who said, look, we get the student aid money coming in. We like that. But on the other hand, we're going to have to pay it back if the students we, we send through our degree programs are, are so weak that they can't make it in the job market and will not be able to repay the money that came to us through tuition, then that would cause the institutions themselves to make some serious changes. They would start, I think, dropping the really weak programs that they've instituted ever since, especially since you know, the last 30 years or so, all of these identity-type studies programs where a lot of the students coast on through absorbing a whole lot of woke ideology but are pretty much unemployable in anything other than a government, government job. They might say, you know, we don't want to have to repay the loans of those students. So the, the, the incentive would now be for the, the schools to take a look at their curriculum, their programs, and say which ones are likely to put us behind the eight ball when it comes to having to repay student loans. That would be a darn good thing. It would also cause them, I think, to look more serious at their costs. As, as it is, there's really no reason for many schools to care much about their costs. They just say, well, the students just borrow more money, and so we can keep on hiring more diversity administrators and spending more money on gilding the administration building and all the things they love to spend money on. Well, if, if they were on the hook for student loans, they'd probably start to think more serious about keeping the cost down so the students would need to borrow as much money. And that might mean some of these, these diversity administrative positions would be, be axed. That would be a good thing. So that's, that's my solution. Right. The schools themselves say, we'll, we'll back the loans if they're not repaid. Or, you know, they don't have to. But if they don't say that, then... Then we cut off eligibility for student aid funds, and the schools would have to find some other way of inducing students to come in, making it affordable to them without access to federal Title IV money. Right. Well, so, so, so your, 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 your account of how this all happened focuses a lot on the kind of choice architecture created by the federal government and right. how, well, yeah, right, you know, Schools are, in some sense, responding just rationally to to financial incentives. What I want to maybe ask about, put in historical context, though, why there was all this money, and and in particular, I I I wonder how much of this comes from a just kind of democratic impulse that a lot of Americans have, where we think, well, everyone can go to college and everyone can you know read these texts and learn and and be educated because mm-hmm. it seems to me that that idea uh, is a part of what fueled this influx of money right. and b right. now that the money is there i think it's kind of created these entrenched constituencies who have a vested interest in propagating that idea so could you talk a bit about the kind of role sure. that kind of small d democratic sentiment plays in all of this yeah yeah 
if you go back in our history, back, let's say, prior to World War II, a pretty small percentage of Americans thought that college was worth it, a really mm-hmm. essential thing for them to go, go to. Only about 10% of American high school graduates enrolled in college prior to World War II. And that was no problem. American, American high schools used to be a whole lot more rigorous than they are today. And nobody, with very, very few exceptions, said, you, you just can't do the work in our field unless you've graduated from college. There were almost no such instances. We had great architects, for example, who never went to college. We, had, we actually had a lot of great lawyers who'd never gone to law school. But people got this idea in their heads, and it was, I think the, the evil villain in this was Lyndon Johnson, who was, after all, trained at Texas State Teachers College, and he was a, a big believer in education as the solution of all of our problems. And when he became president in 1964, he started pushing the idea that more education was the solution to everything was wrong with America. We could solve poverty if more people would just go to go to college. Because after all, college-educated people earned more money. And therefore, QED, the more people who go to college, the more people will earn good incomes, and the fewer people will be living in poverty. Seemed logical. More people earning more money, that'd be a great thing. So let's send more people to college. Let's make it easy for them to go to college. Let's make these loans available to everybody. The easy, low, low interest rates. And what nobody thought about it back then was, what is this going to do over time to the educational standards? Nobody was thinking about that. But it seemed like such a good idea. College, every, almost, most of the people who go to college are successful, therefore put more people through college. Obama made the, the, the same point. Back when he was newly elected in 2009, he went to Congress and said, we should make make it a national priority that we become the nation with the highest percentage of college graduates in the whole world. The thinking was exactly the same. College boosts your income, so let's put more people through college. And what nobody challenged Obama on was the idea that everybody really is college material, that all the people who go to college, if you just put them through, they'll all become successful and will become a a wealthier, more productive nation, and we'll be able to keep up with all the other countries that are putting more people through college. It just doesn't work. The incentives work against the maintenance of educational standards once you say, well, we just want everyone to go. So that, I think, how we got into this. It was just the mistake of assuming that if it's good for some people, it's good for everybody else. And we've now found out that it isn't good for everybody else, the result is that a lot of people who go through college have wasted quite a few years of their lives, learned very little of any value, and have piled up a huge amount of debt. That is a gigantic problem for us going forward. It seems like this is sort of all tied up in the in in, in overhauling education more generally. But I guess, you know, I think I think that there are ways to I wanna I wanna sort of segment in and focus in on accreditation specifically, just just for a little bit. Because it does still sort of seem to me like, you know, you, you, you could, in theory, preserve, you could switch to income-based repayment for student loans. In fact, we were expanding the IBR program, moves that happened. There, there, there were shifts in the IBR program. 
and still preserve the accreditation system. I guess so. You know what? What do you say to the argument? I mean, first of all, is is your view that we should get rid of accreditation altogether? No, say, no, no. It's so, so, so how do you how do you think about how do you think about dealing with I accreditation? Think, yeah, we should return accreditation to its original form, which was perfectly voluntary. Back in the late 1800s, early 19, up until the 1950s, 1960s, accreditation was not required. Schools could take it or leave it if they thought it was worthwhile to be a member of the Southern Association or the Northeastern Association or North Central. If they thought it was worthwhile, they could do it. They didn't have to. Most did. They wanted to be identified as real colleges. Accreditation did that for them. It was kind of like a, a consumer-friendly stamp of approval saying, yeah, this is a real college. There's no reason, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it might have been useful. The accrediting bodies might have actually provided some useful services to the schools. After all, they, they could drop if they weren't getting their value, their, their money's worth out of what it costs to be a member of these associations. If we took away the, the power of being the gatekeeper for federal student aid funds, then the accrediting bodies would go back to being just regular consumer-friendly organizations that have to pass the test of the marketplace, selling their services. That would be fine with me. I think they might be, be, be rather useful in that respect. At least they'd have to become useful. Otherwise, schools would say, well, since we no longer have to be members of your association, and since it costs us some money, if we don't see that we're getting the value, we'll just drop you, just like any service. So that would be a good thing. I'm not against accreditation, but let it pass the test of the marketplace, which it hasn't had to do for a long time. Well, and then how should, how should government decide which schools are eligible for federal funds? The skin in the game contract. Yeah. They will sign on to saying, look, if the people we purport to educate cannot repay their student loans, right. then we'll be liable for them. They're just like co you know, a parent co-signing on the loan, yeah. college, you know, college loan, like co-signing on a car loan for the kid. We need someone, some responsible party standing behind the loan. Right. What about, I mean, here's, here's just another idea, though. You know, one thing that's been lurking in the background of the conversation is that accreditation, I mean, the accrediting bodies have been politicized in the sense that they're fellow left-wing zealots, but accreditation hasn't really been a live political issue. I mean, I'm wondering, what do you think would happen if we didn't do the skin-in-the-game approach for whatever reason? Maybe it just politically they can't get the votes for it, whatever. Which is but probably did, true at present. Right. I mean, so assume, so say that's true. They could say like, pres, you know, DeSantis's education secretary and some hypothetical future administration could be like, look, you know, we're not going to recognize the American Bar Association as the law school accreditor yeah. unless it, you know, stops pushing critical race theory in law schools, right? I, I mean, yes. do you think that just, because it seems like to me, part of what's happened is just Republican, like, not just Republicans, but everyone's kind of just neglected this and let it run its course. But if it became yes. the site of political contestation, I wonder yeah. if that political contest could itself discipline the accreditors a bit. It, it probably would. A college accrediting up till very recently has just been too dull of a topic to bring up. Most people would just say, oh, so what? Big deal. 
I'm, I'm, I want to listen to something interesting. But maybe that's changed. And here's one reason why. The taxpayers are on the hook for a vast amount of money now that Biden is saying, well, we want to forgive all these college loans and the education department is saying we want to make it easier than ever for students to avoid paying the loans. There's a whole bunch of administrative proposals that would, would do that. Now people might say, wait a minute, we're already trillions of dollars in debt and they, they want to make it even even worse for us taxpayers in the future, owing to the, the, the college debt fiasco. So yeah, people I think are now primed to start paying attention to this issue. And they will, I think, do so if some lawmakers decide that it's worth talking about. DeSantis might be one such person. In fact, I kind of think he, he is, in as much as he's shown that he's willing to fight the, the, the culture fight down in Florida by appointing new trustees to the new college, people who are willing to take on the, the woke zealots who run the faculty and, and make the curriculum as bad as it is at these schools. It's an issue that would now, I think, have some traction in the American public if it were brought up to them in a way that made sense, which I think is easily done. And if that were the case, the accreditors might say, whoa, Maybe we should stop insisting on woke stuff, at least. And another point in that regard, under federal law, it is now okay for schools to switch accrediting bodies. In fact, I think this was a rule put through just within the last, last, last couple of years that these regional accreditors no longer have monopolies. The Southern Association doesn't even, no longer has a monopoly over southern states. DeSantis has, in fact, said, we want our schools to shop around for different accrediting bodies, not necessarily the Southern Association any longer. They can look around, find other accrediting bodies. Well, that form of competition itself, I think, will help rein in right. the extreme wokeness where these accrediting bodies say, well, we don't really care whether your students have learned to write, read and write, but we darn well want to make sure that your faculty is sufficiently diverse. That I think they'll stop doing once schools realize they, they, they are free to, to drop their traditional accrediting bodies and go, go with a, a different one. So I, I, just, to, 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 just on the point about sort of shifting incentives, you know, I, think, I think much of your argument is sort of for, for, for a palatable alternative is about internalizing incentives, right? It was about internalizing costs and, cost and benefits, which is always the policy optimal approach and it's almost never the political economy optimal approach. And what I mean by that is nobody wants their cost and benefits internalized to them. And so they have access to the levers of power. They will do everything. Public public choice. Pure and public choice. Choice. Right. Sorry. It's, it's pure public choice theory. Right. Exactly. You, you, um, want, you want other people to bear your costs. You want the benefits contrary to you. You want the costs dispersed amongst other people. Right. Well, and, and you know, I it, it, it seems like, for example, you can describe the the student debt situation is described very neatly that way. You get you get free government education, free government funded education, and then the taxpayer bears the burden rather than you having to pay it back. And this is straightforwardly what's happening. And we're seeing the same political economy phenomenon. You know, there's there's one one party is captured by a vested interest group that says, you know, in order to get our support, you have to give us money in the following way. Uh, this is like like very straightforward stuff. So I you know I guess I guess. Just because we're talking about optimism, 
you know, part of part of how part of how accreditation plausibly, you know, see an impact is basically, you know, people don't pay a lot of attention to it. It's obscured. I think that those dynamics tend to work in the same way. The same the same sort of you know, as 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 long as their as long as their benefits are concentrated and their costs are socialized, they'll they'll sort of happily keep chugging along, collecting right. fees. And so so to some extent it's you know, you want to bring more attention to the issue. But then, you know, a, a broader question is how do you think about dealing with they, they have an incentive to avoid public scrutiny. How do you how do you cope with an institution that has such an incentive? <sighs> yeah, no, sorry. it's, it's yeah. an easy <laughs> How do you cope with that? That that that's a gigantic problem. Is that in, in institutions that get government money get captured, and their incentive is to just make sure the the money tap continues to be turned on to the maximum. That's 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 the big public choice problem that we face, not only in education, but in almost everything else. Institutions get politicized. Their incentives change. The only thing I can say is America has to start turning the clock back to days before these institutions were, were politicized. Let them go back to, com to competing. Colleges need to compete for students and and their standards will go back if they realize that they, they will only get students if they are offering serious education. We, we change the incentives to the point where anybody who can go to, who, who, who breathes can go to college these days and they'll find a college that will take their money for four years or more and purport to educate them. That that's what's got to change. We're wasting vast amounts of resources on education in name only. You know, colleges, the, the, a phrase that's been in use for quite a few years is college is the new high school. Actually, it's more like yeah. now college is the new middle school. You, you find kids in college who read and write, many of them, at about a middle school level, and yet colleges want them. It's, it's all because of politics. So I think the big challenge is to persuade the American public we need to depoliticize higher education and depoliticize lots of other topics as well. But let's just focus on higher education. Convince people that we'll get more bang for the buck if we go back to saying, if you want to borrow some money for college, you have to do it from some institution that is sufficiently convinced of your your seriousness to stand behind the money and otherwise go do something else go learn some other some other trade learn a real trade once we start doing that i think i think people would say hey you know this is working we're getting more people who are in entering the workforce at 1920 with some real skills because they studied something that didn't cost an arm and a leg as opposed to lots of people who are almost useless in the labor force at 22 and 23 because they went to an accredited college. Changing the dynamic of, of government funding, that's, that's the big challenge. You know, I, I'm very sympathetic to all of what you're saying. I think there, there's a potential objection, though, in that Yes, we we want the market to work better, and right now it's not really a free market because of what the government's done. But there's there's a sort of separate set of concerns about what the kind of 
general corporatization, marketization of education has done. And I, I, and in particular, how that has played into the hollowing out of the humanities. I guess I worry that if we try to solve this problem with your approach, it may work. But once the, if the colleges get really focused on will the kid pay back their loans, that might incentive, you know, they might then start pushing kids into STEM and pre-professional fields, which are great. But something bad might happen too. Oh no! What? No, I, I, it's, something bad might happen too. No, right? That's that's great. But but then but then you know if if and look like I I don't think there's any if if it pushes kids to major in in math instead of in DEI studies, that's terrific. But if everyone starts majoring in math instead of say like serious English or philosophy, and those disciplines just kind of die out. You know, Charles is making faces because Charles is a Philistine and doesn't care about these things. But, you know, I actually do think that the transmission of Western civilization culture to future generations is important. And universities have historically been one of the major institutions responsible for that transmission, especially among the elites. And so that would be kind of what I worry about is, is if we try to solve the woke problem with market forces even if that works on its own terms, it may come with other costs. And I just, I'm curious how you respond to that because that's always what kind of worries me about these. Well, actually, these I, I'm very much on the same wavelength as you are, Aaron. And you know, I've been here working at the, the, the Martin Center for Academic Renewal for a long time. And I've seen over the last quarter century almost the steady decline of the humanities. It's pretty much the problems the humanities face are, are self-inflicted. They, they, they cease to attract the students they used to because a lot of students say, look, I, I really would like to study English literature, but it's now all about deconstructing everything, and it's of no interest to me any longer. I think a lot of schools know that a good humanities program that students who absorb a true liberal arts education are thoroughly employable. They're in high demand. They can get good jobs. They'll be able to repay their, their student loans if it's a good education. On the other hand, we've allowed the standards to, to fall, to be for these, these English departments and history departments and so forth, to be taken over by the zealots who only want to make sure that they're, they're using their courses as a soapbox for the propagation of their, their ideology. That's a bad thing. And I think that would actually fall. That would be one of the things colleges would start to look at again if they had skin in the game. They'd say, look, you know, our, our, our English majors, such as they are, have an awful hard time getting any, any sort of decent job these days. And so maybe we'd be better off if we actually turned it back into the way an English major education was 40 years ago, studying real literature, learning to write very well. One of the things about the college in general, but it's in particularly bad in the humanities, nobody takes writing seriously any longer. Writing papers. Professors don't want to grade papers. You take out the red pen, someone's going to be offended at you and you'll be accused. So students skate through college writing blather. Of course, now it's going to be chat GPT blather. 
And they learn nothing about the, the good skills that liberal arts majors used to possess. Students, I think, would once again get that kind of education if the colleges said, huh. So we need to stand behind their education. Maybe we ought to make sure it's a real education. Yeah, so I think that's a good note yeah. to start transitioning to concluding thoughts on. Charles, you, you began this conversation as a bit of a skeptic of the, the importance of accreditation. Where, where are you left? I mean, look, I think we said a lot of the conversation talking about sort of overhaul of the educational system more generally, which is which you know suggests to me that accreditation is sort of one part of a much broader coalescence of institutional problems. And you know, I think as as I was looking to my question for George earlier, look, you know, I think I think that there are fairly familiar incentives in the system. There's a fairly familiar pattern playing out in which, you know, the, the bureaucracy is propagating itself. I do like the idea of sort of trying to trying to loosen the requirements. I right, you know, trying try to be pragmatist for a second, I like the idea of trying to loosen accreditation requirements. You know, one of the one of the sort of things I expect to see, hope to see once the Supreme Court ends affirmative action is sort of a flowering of diversity of offerings in higher education, where some schools will implicitly practice affirmative action, some schools won't. We'll see how the schools that don't compete with the schools that do and will have options. And that's, you know, made possible by an end government mandate. I think that'll be, anyway, you know, I think, I think often the solution, particularly in the education space, is trying to sort of reduce burden at the margins on regulate or on, on regulated entities. So this seems like a, you know, I'm I'm persuaded that, you know, a 10% shift towards reducing the mandatedness of accreditation, reducing the onerous accreditation to the extent that's been the power of political actors, probably a beneficial effect across the whole system. Although I still don't think it's necessarily like the keynote. What are your what are your thoughts here? Sure. Yeah, I mean I I I think you're right that it's not it's not the keynote on which everything turns. It's it's part of a much broader thing. Although, you know, I, I do think even that 10% is is important and worth going after. I'm yeah, I mean, I would say I'm left thinking that perhaps the biggest challenge to all this is, as I alluded to earlier, this kind of democratic impulse a lot of people now have. And of course, it's been propagated by both the government and by universities themselves, that everyone can and must go to college. What I what I suppose I think it, it would just be hard to shatter, and this is based partly on my just anecdotal experiences debating this with people, is really just, just get it through people's heads that you can't allow more than a relatively small percentage of the population to go to college without it coming at some pretty significant cost in quality, which in turn enables kind of the woke bullshit. And that, you know, really the solution here involves kind of tacit recognition of hierarchy and a tacit recognition of the fact that we are not all born with the same cognitive capacities or work ethic or personalities suited to, say, a liberal arts education, and that's okay. I mean, I, I think that if we could just agree as a society that college isn't for most people, and that's fine, that'd be great. But it, it, that is such a... People really don't like to hear that a lot of people, including probably a lot of people in their family or people they're friends with, just really shouldn't have been admitted to college, which is... To be clear, like what I believe, I mean, I remember, so we both went to Yale, Charles and I, and, you know, people at Yale are pretty smart, but I remember even thinking like, 
God, yeah, some of these people should not be here. They're just, they're not actually that intelligent. But then you like go to like, you know, schools that are considered, you know, good, but not Yale tier. And the problem is just so much worse. Like, and you realize that just there is like in my ideal world, you know, kind of the only people going to college would have pretty high IQs and just the whole thing would look totally different. But that is so far from where we are and would require such a cultural shift that I'm, I'm part of why I like the accreditation idea is because I think it's a more meliorous solution that does not require us to like blow up this central kind of democratic impulse that a lot of Americans have. I'd love to blow up that impulse, but I just don't think that we're going to in the near future. So yeah, I'm a fan of the DeSantis, you know, comes in and, and messes with accreditation to put pressure on schools. I think that's probably the most realistic thing we can do. Why don't we do some recommendations? Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about accreditation and just, just keep on this beat, the guy you should follow, I think above anyone else, is John Saylor at the National Association of Scholars. He's also written for the James Martin Center, yes. including a good piece called When Discipline-Specific Accreditors Go Woke. But he's 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 really good on just every time there's a kind of, in medical schools or law schools or even other schools, anytime accreditors do something crazy, he's on it. And I think that if you follow him, follow him on Twitter, you will start to see just how pervasive this kind of centralizing, coercive, top-down accrediting pressure really is. My recommendation, again, I'm the, I'm the lighthearted recommender this week. My wife and I have been watching the new Bob Odenkirk show on AMC, Lucky Hank, which is his project after after Better Call Saul ended, which I did not actually watch Better Call Saul. But Lucky Hank is moderately based on my wife's favorite book, Straight Man by Richard Russo, which I have now read many times because it's her favorite book. The show itself is very funny. Odenkirk is very funny. I don't know if it's going to survive more than a season, but I hope it does because I like it. So I recommend that to listeners so they can boost the viewership numbers. George, do you have a recommendation for listeners of your own work? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Charles. Do I have some recommendations? All right. Recommendation number one, check out the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. Go to our website and you'll find that we are an organization that focuses like a laser, like Bill Clinton said, on, on higher education issues, mostly focusing on all the stuff that's gone wrong, all the waste, the folly, the abuse. That's, that's what we write about several times a week. And we've had, as, as Aaron mentioned, John Saylor has written for us. We've had, we have lots of other people who have deep knowledge about what's gone wrong in their fields, at their institutions, writing for us. If you want, want a deep dive on what's wrong with higher education, go to the Martin Center's website. Now, if I can do one more, mm-hmm. please. Try my novel. About one year ago, I had my first novel published. It's entitled The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale. And it's a somewhat Ayn Rand-esque novel, a lot shorter than Atlas Shrugged, more up-to-date than Atlas Shrugged, but kind of cut from the same bolt of cloth. And I think if you're looking for a really fun read that makes, makes the case against mega government, against omnipotent government, as Ludwig and Mises like to put it, that's, it's, it's a darn good book. A lot of people have said I... I bought it and enjoyed it on my airplane trip to wherever. 
<laughs> so the awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, Post Hill Press, 2022. Give it a try. You'll like it. Try it. You'll like it. Well, thank you, George, for joining us on Institutionalized. A lot of fun. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, accreditation challenges as you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Ernst Barium. That is all the time that we have for this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sabarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. You'll join us again soon. Thank you.